Hey, indie filmmakers, I'm Griffin Hammond. I'm Nick Bodmer, and on this week's episode, the FAA is making it much faster for drone pilots to get flight authorization. Plus, your questions about filming loud concerts, entering film festivals, and storing video assets. Hello, Nick. Hello, Mr. Hammond. How are you, sir? I'm good. So I, my friend Matt Edwards, who no, flies... No. Sorry, Griffin. You've forgotten again. What do we do at the beginning of the episode? We do hashtag Ask Griffin. Oh, okay. Go no, for it. No, it's been a while. It's been a while. Griffin, what is your favorite show you've binged watched since binge watching became a thing? I suppose that was probably Breaking Bad. Boom. Just all the way through, you're like, I've got it all in front of me. Let's do it. Yeah, I also binge-watched uh, The West Wing, but uh, I think I enjoyed Breaking <sighs> Bad even more. Well, that's wrong, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and, and how short, because there's what? Is there like seven seasons of Breaking Bad or not that many? Six? I think it's in the ballpark of six, yeah. Yeah. How fast did you watch it? Uh, like in maybe three months or something. Okay, so pretty quick for that many seasons. Yeah. Very interesting. If you want to ask Griffin a non-filmmaking question, you can tweet with the hashtag AskGriffin, and I will pull it for the show. All right, now about your friend Matt Edwards. Sorry for interrupting. Okay, now I'm going to start the show with my friend Matt Edwards, who is a drone pilot, among other mm -hmm. things, in uh, Bloomington, Illinois. And he sent me a link to an article... Uh, recently about the FAA and they are changing how you can get authorization to to fly your drone near airports okay which I didn't even know how to go about this at all before uh, but one of the FAA's rules is uh, you know among other things you can't fly over people so you really you're not even allowed to fly in crowded urban areas uh, you can't fly above certain heights you there's there's other rules but one of the big ones is like you can't fly within what is it like four miles of an airport it's a pretty wide wide margin yeah yeah and that doesn't sound too bad i mean if you're in a place like new york you're like well of course i'm i'm this is not going to be good because there's laguardia and newark and jfk and it's such a tight city that i'm sure i am currently within four miles of all of these airports so i'm gonna have trouble flying but the thing I keep finding, and maybe you've found this too, is whenever you turn on your DJI Spark and go to fly it or, or look up the FAA maps and see if where you can and can't fly, almost every suburb you're ever in has heliports at, like, hospitals. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're, you're almost always within four miles of a heliport, and... It's like, what do you call the hospital or something? <laughs> and what's the rule? Well, so I know commercial pilots who have their commercial license, there is a process for requesting to fly in these areas from the FAA. But the problem is, I think until now, it, it can take like 60 days or even 90 days to hear back. So you really have to plan this months in advance, your flight. And so the thing that Matt sent me that they're doing is there's this thing called the LAANC. What does this stand for? The Low Altitude Authorization and Notification Capability. Oh, and sounds I about right. I guess they've been 
beta testing it over the last few months, and now they're going to add it to hundreds, I think 500 new airports all over the country, where it's like through an app, you can just immediately automatically get authorization. You know, what's interesting, I was just thinking I'm getting a, uh, you know, I'm buying, in the process of getting a new house. And I realized my new house is much closer to the airport than my old one. So I'm wondering, Ooh. will the spark allow me to take off from my own backyard in my new house? Do you know what the range is? Well, I think I, I've noticed that the spark and DJI, I mean, they're continually changing these things, but it may not stop you from flying in that area. Uh, okay. and, and I suppose you're probably allowed to fly until you hit that, what is it, like 400 feet threshold? There is some know. recreational range where you're okay. Um, I would imagine you can't fly 400 feet and below right next to the airport. That'll probably be a problem. But I got to think that in your backyard, if you're flying around below a certain altitude, you must be okay. Uh, but I think if you want to go above that space, that's when you're asking for, for FAA authorization. Oh, look at this. Although, so D DJI has on their website a fly safe map where you can look and see the different zones that it recognizes. Yeah. And I am darn close to the restricted zone where you cannot launch. But, yeah. but I'm actually out, I'm outside of it. I'm in the authorization zone where I would, in theory, need to use this system in order to fly. Yeah. Well, and I've been using an app called B Before You Fly, which is the FAA app, and it kind of uh -huh. it gives you all those things. It's the same data, I imagine, that TGI is grabbing. It's interesting. But so if you, I mean, one this this only applies to commercial pilots. So if you want to get these quick authorizations, and if you want to fly in urban areas, not over people, but you're probably within that four mile range, you may be able to use this. L-A-A-N-C system, which, let's see, it's debuting April 30th. They're actually rolling it out, like, it's kind of a beta, so they're rolling it out in separate regions around the country to start. Yep. So starting April 30th, they're gonna, they're gonna do the South Central USA, which apparently includes part of Illinois, or maybe all of Illinois. Uh, and then it's like every... Every month, they're adding a new region. There's six regions. So by the end of September 13th, the whole country should be included, or at least these 500 major airports. It's awesome. Yeah. But this, again, only and the applies to commercial flying. Right. Yeah. And I imagine it's also only for the kind of flying that falls under FAA jurisdiction and not recreational low-altitude flying. Gotcha. But uh, I suppose another reason to get a commercial license if you're doing a lot of drone flying and, and want to be able to fly in those areas. There are currently a few different apps that can do it. Like this is a protocol that the FAA has developed and people can use this in their own apps. So like one of them is called, uh, let's see, what was the one I was looking at? I was looking at one called AirMap, which will utilize this. It's nice that the FAA is kind of being forward-thinking about this and, and kind of trying to get ahead of the curve as opposed to just adding more layers of bureaucracy, you know? Right, yeah. Like an open API that other apps can use. You kind of don't expect that out of somebody like the FAA, but maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. 
Right. Well, yeah, and even if you're not someone with who currently has a commercial pi- uh, drone pilot license, it kind of bodes well for everyone. If it's if they're making it easier for everyone, I'm sure the trend will start to trickle down. Like even if you're even if you're flying recreationally, the rules will become clearer and everyone benefits. Guess how close my new house will be to the closest runway. Within that four mile range, <laughs> two and a half miles. I mean, I'm right there. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's one and a half miles where they where the DJI restricts you, like won't even allow you to take off. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, and I think I've been saying four miles, but maybe it's a five mile range. Actually, clearly, I don't I don't know very much. This is why I have to ask Matt Edwards for help with these things. The expert, Matt Edwards. Yeah. Well, should we answer some questions? Yeah, let's answer some questions that we do know more about. You probably don't, but we'll try. <laughs> Email from Brandon in Seattle. I decided to enter film festivals, and I'm in pre-production so I can get started for these this year in Seattle, Washington. I just wanted to see if you had any tips or thoughts. Griffin, you ever entered a so, film festival before? I have. And actually, I've met Brandon. He was in New York recently, and uh, we met Did up. Did you buy him a taco? No. <laughs> I don't buy everyone, every podcast fan of Taco. Okay, just wondering. <laughs> um, although what's funny about you saying that is that I know I, I've already figured that out. I, don't don't tell Nick the is audience. Referencing, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out in the future. Nick is referencing a Taco joke from the bonus episode that we'll play after this episode next week. How did that happen, guys? I can see into the future. <laughs> You'll get the joke later. You'll laugh. You'll be like, that Nick, he was funny. <laughs> anyway, I want to commend Brandon on being in pre-production and already thinking about film festivals and thinking about the timeline here. Because let's see, we're in, we're kind of in like the beginning. We're kind of in the thick of film festival season right now. All the big ones happen in March and April. And they're deadlines will be around october november this year uh so getting your production done now is a good idea i should i'm sure i've done this before on the podcast but i should link to my full list of film festivals that i entered with sriracha a few years ago hey you've got a nice spreadsheet right with all the dates and costs and all the important info right yeah, and I'm sure all the dates and costs have changed, but at least the the kind It'll of be timeline is probably correct, similar. Right? Yeah, yeah, and at least it gives you an idea of what's a, what's out there, what kinds of film festivals are available to you. And you you should always go to filmfreeway.com. It's a great platform for just looking at what's out there. There's thousands of film festivals, but we'll uh, I'll share notes. that both those things at hey.film. I guess what other tips do we have for film festivals? Make your you credits apply to as short a lot, as possible. Right? I mean, you got to be. You, you've got to uh, apply to a lot to get into a few. Is that is that true or false? Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe I've been kind of strategic, and I, I think I've, especially the the second time around, I entered film festivals that I'd gotten into before, so I kind of knew that I would I would have good luck getting in. Film festivals like to accept alums, um, but I entered. I had about a 50% acceptance rate, which I think is above average, uh, especially if you're trying to enter like for all the big ones, or Sundance for and Sriracha. Sci-fi. 
for both uh for sriracha oh. for sriracha it was around 50 percent most of the time and then actually maybe it even improved because at a certain point i wasn't entering anymore and people were just inviting me because they'd seen it at other festivals i'd like to invite you to my film festival griffin it's a 200 dollar <laughs> application fee though i think generally just diversify where you're entering you know don't just enter huge festivals you know maybe enter a couple big ones if you're feeling pretty good about your film but try to find some festivals that fit the niche of your film enter some documentary film festivals or some asian american film festivals like sriracha did well with those because it it was the story of a vietnamese vietnamese immigrant and uh also make the credits really short which i did not do with sriracha <laughs> well you had a lot of backers to thank and yeah. you gave me my own plate yeah <laughs> still my claim to fame i still tell people about that <laughs> i like it here's an email we got from dan and dan has filmed a few weddings over the years he's been using canon dslrs and now he has access to a panasonic gh5 camera i imagine that's why he's directing this question at us and he has a 12 to 35 millimeter lens and a 35 to 100 millimeter lens his question is he hasn't invested a lot in the canon glass so he's not stuck with that glass but he's wondering if you were going to start out doing wedding films right now what camera gear and extras would you invest in he currently has a few zoom h1 recorders lav mics and rode video mics and video mic pros so he's not worried about audio equipment he can get creative there but he's wondering what we think about cameras lenses gimbals and drones if i were going to go back and do weddings full time what gear would i buy that's a good question well hopefully he has tripods yeah gotta have a good fluid head tripod you gotta have two tripods one minimum with a fluid head a yeah. nice fluid head. and make right? sure that second one i mean probably both of them height is really important here for Super a wedding important. especially yeah. the camera in the back you don't want this thing to be a five and a half foot camera or tripod like you maybe need seven feet to make sure you're getting over people when they stand um so what camera would i would you get if you were on a budget griffin what camera would you get would you go g85 or would you go all the way to the gh5 does the g85 have a recording limit no no yeah clearly not because we use it for the podcast uh so that's fine yeah i don't i don't see there's no reason you need a GH5. Depending on your budget, right? I mean, I could see... I think like a GH5 and a GH5S might be a good combo. A lot of times yeah. uh, when I'm shooting a wedding, my close-up camera, I'm using like a zoom lens that is not as fast as what I can put on my wide shot. So a little extra low-light sensitivity would be helpful uh, on, on a close-up camera. But then you also probably want a camera with in-body image stabilization to go to. So I think maybe a combo of a G85 and a GH5S or a GH5 and a GH5S would be a good two-camera setup. Um, <clears throat> I think a gim if I I think a gimbal would be top of my list if I were going to start now. I you know I have yeah. the glide cam that I used quite a bit, but it was so cumbersome to set up and balance, and often I just didn't have time to to deploy it. So I think a gimbal that you could just pop a camera onto and go would be awesome for um, for run and gun shooting uh, during a wedding. Um, and these days you can get something like the Zion Tech 
crane that I'm using for not much more than what we spent at the time on the glide cams that we had the glide cam HD 2000s. Yeah. I, yeah, I still have my would, glide cam uh, HD 2000. Do people still buy those? Is that worth anything? Should I sell that? So I thought about selling mine because I'm not using it right now, but because I had my first Zeon Tech crane break on me, I'm keeping it because I just keep thinking like if I'm on a, let's say I'm on a two day shoot in the city and it breaks on day one, at least I know I have this, <laughs> the glide cam can't really break. It doesn't have any electronics. Right. Well, if you want to buy my glide cam HD 2000, send me an email. <laughs> at Nick at hey.film. Hey. Um, but I would go gimbal for sure. Um, audio is probably super critical. It sounds like you've got a good handle on that, but I'd want multiple. I want at least two lav mics going into small recorders that you can stick in a pocket. I don't want to deal with wireless audio on a wedding shoot. I think you just want multiple recorders. Yeah. Um, and the Zoom H1 might be a little big to put in people's pockets. So right. I guess you might Nick want something a little smaller. Something small, yeah. I have, I, you know, I use the Tascam DRO8, but they don't make that anymore. So whatever the new tiny pocket recorder is uh, that you can yeah. plug a lav mic into is what I'd suggest. The lenses um, are clearly very important, and I don't know what Canon glass he has. If if his Canon glass gives him all the range he would want for a wedding, then maybe he wants to either use use it with a Canon DSLR or get a Metabone speed booster for a Panasonic camera. But I know that he's talking about the 12 to 35 and the 35 to 100 millimeter lens for the gh5 i love those lenses and i think they're great for documentary they could be a little bit limiting for weddings depending on how you want to shoot them i think the 35 to 100 could be a good close-up camera Close up camera yep. you're not too far away with your camera uh you know if you're able to get near the front of the church and zoom in that could be a really good lens but then you don't have the ability to zoom out and see the whole church very well either so you might find yourself swapping lenses from that vantage point or like we used to use the 14 to 140 lens which is amazing focal range but the downside was it was f4 and it dark four to five six five eight yeah five eight you're right you're right yeah that's again why so, maybe like on a GH5S maybe that's acceptable, but it was always yeah. limiting. There were times when I was like, I want to use that lens and I can't because it's too dark, and I'd have to go right. like my 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 closest prime was like a forty-five millimeter prime, and that's just not tight enough. So yeah, well yeah, back then we were shooting with GH1s and GH2s, and I'm sure their ISO performance was a lot worse than the current cameras on the market. Yep. So we just so, spent, yeah. I don't know, five, six, seven grand, something like that. <laughs> maybe more, For maybe closer kit? to 10. I know, I'm just saying the stuff we just listed, how much would all that cost? Oh. It's probably <laughs> a seven to $10,000 kit we just kind of outlined, do you think? Yeah, probably. I mean, when we started, I think we spent something like three or 4000 and we split it between the two of us. That's how we got our, how we got our start. Worked out pretty yeah. well, though, I think. But that was that was a GH1 and a camcorder, uh, and then we already had tripods, and so we bought some really crappy audio gear, which we improved later on. Yeah, we wasted some money on some shoulder mount rigs and things like that. Maybe it wasn't yeah. a waste, but 
Yeah, I think the moral of the story is you don't need all the perfect gear to start shooting weddings. Just look at where your gaps are. Like you said, you already have all this audio gear. You might be okay there if you're creative. We got an email from Ed. He wants to record a concert, but he finds the audio levels are always overloaded, even on the GH5's lowest recording level. You ever have uh, any problems with the in-camera audio in really loud environments, Griffin? I realize I haven't, probably because I haven't relied solely on the camera for audio in those kinds of situations. I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. a concert I recorded for Bloomberg Television when I was working there. And I'm sure I, I mean, I'm always trying to get redundant audio. So I'm sure I put an audio recorder somewhere in the room with a microphone just to get that the, the real audio there. And then I was also probably plugged into the board to get the nice audio coming through yep. the speakers. And then on top of that, my internal microphone on the camera is going, but ultimately that's not what I'm relying on. So I haven't had that problem but I can see why this would be a problem. If you're close to the speakers and all you're doing is recording with the, you know, through camera mic. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's talking about, he's not even plugging in a microphone. He's just using the internal mic. Cause his, yeah. In his, his email, he kind that, of, ex- he, he explains he's trying to keep a low profile. He says the band knows he's recording, but he doesn't think security is going to um, be happy with him shooting. So he's trying to keep a low profile. Yeah. So I imagine it's got to be kind of like, I mean, you may be smarter about this than me, but I, I think about how audio levels on the camera have got to be kind of like gain or ISO on a camera. They engineer it to have a starting point and they can boost it from there, but they can't really go any lower. So if Panasonic designs the camera to be, this is its lowest audio recording level, I imagine that is a hard stop, that there's nothing you can really do about it. Yeah, that's definitely a potential. And the other thing that I was thinking could be happening, and I'm definitely guessing and and just theorizing at this point, it's hard to say. He's saying he's using the lowest settings in the camera that are available. So I think there's probably not a good option for in-camera audio for this situation. But what might be happening is it's actually possible to clip the physical elements of a microphone. I'm guessing that the, um, the microphone element inside the camera is extremely small. And basically what's happening is a diaphragm is moving, you know, up and down with the sound and moving like an electromagnet. Um, And you can actually, if sound is so loud, you can force that to clip. Basically, it's hitting its limits and can't move any farther. And it's probably very small and just, so you're probably clipping the physical microphone. And there's just no way to save that. Um, Just the microphone can't handle those sound pressure levels that you're getting. So, um I think the key is kind of what you said at the beginning of this, Griffin, is, you know, getting bored audio. I think if you're shooting a band, you want to get a mix straight from the board. And if you know the band, maybe that's something that you can, uh, you know, work with them in advance to have the sound guy give you an output to an audio recorder. And that would be unobtrusive because it's up at the soundboard um, and you can and you can move along. So that would be my suggestion. Or, you know, I think just thinking about, like you said, just thinking about other sources of audio like you also are carrying a phone around with you i don't know how your phone performs in that situation maybe it performs better try rolling audio on it too and see what that gets you yeah i bet it would work better i also wonder if there's possibly a physical fix to this like what if you put 
10 pieces <laughs> your, of tape over, the... up over it yeah anything yeah, to reduce like that, that, the... that sound pressure level obviously it's going to uh, you know it's going to attenuate different frequencies at different levels so it might sound not great but it might give you something right. usable yeah <laughs> my immediately i got you know like the attenuator cans you put over your head like you know you put on yeah. a little kid at a concert or something i had to see like <laughs> right. putting one of those on your camera yeah can't you just buy you an earplug and like tape it together? to your camera <laughs> you might be able to is there like an actual like cutout for the microphone on these things or is it just like in the cracks of the camera i don't even know let's let's look at the gh3 i'm shooting with right now uh I'm yeah yeah there's little little air gaps same on the i don't see one on the g85 but i could be wrong i'm just missing it sure. same on the gh5 it's on top of the camera so yeah, I kind of wonder if you covered those up somehow. But I wonder, in a situation like that, it's so loud, it's probably reverberating the entire camera body. Like, it's still going to make its way through, right? The sound Yeah, waves. probably. But it might be fun to play yeah. with. Yeah. Record the board audio. It's going to sound way better no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Here's a YouTube comment we got from This Way Up World. Who, uh, this person has a question. I am starting to do a lot more editing and starting to get... RSI, that's uh, repetitive stress, I think. Repeated stress, something. I can't remember what the acronym is. Uh, but he's getting aches on his fingers and wrists. Currently using a MacBook Pro 15-inch with a separate Logitech mouse on my left hand and also a Magic Trackpad 2. What accessories do you use in your editing, and are there any exercises or habits that you have to avoid problems? Repetitive strain injury. RSI. That's what it is. There you go. Do you ever get repetitive strain injury? Thankfully, it's not been an issue for me yet. Um, you know, I'm on a computer a lot for work, but no, it has not been an issue. And when I edit, I, you know, just this happened because, I, you know, I used to commute on a train every day. So I did all my editing on a laptop on a train. So I'm used to editing with a laptop sitting on my lap and that's it. And like even to this day, that's how I'll go edit because that's just how I'm comfortable. It's kind of strange, yeah. you know. I, I don't hook up an external monitor or a keyboard or mouse or trackpad. I just use the laptop, trackpad, and keyboard, and that's how I'm used to editing. And I feel like I can't change it now. Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. Well, I definitely learned how to edit on a laptop, and so I still kind of edit that way. I like having a trackpad. I use the Magic Trackpad as well on my iMac because I that's how I feel comfortable I don't use a mouse but I do find that when I edit a lot on my laptop and my wife Amy tries to help me she like points out when I'm doing this and and she was she was responsible for me getting onto a better desk and a better chair but I tend to I'll edit on the laptop sitting at a table and that's not the greatest way to edit because you are like looking down at it and you're kind of it just changes your whole posture into this hunch and I realize I do kind of get some some stress in my back, and I feel like occasionally I'm getting massages to help me with that. I think some of that is also like me carrying thirty pounds of camera gear in a backpack around on my back. Yeah. But yeah, I think the trick is just is breaking up that habit. Uh, you know, I'm trying not to always edit like that. Try to take breaks from editing. Uh, I do do some hand exercises every once in a while. Just <laughs> I have like a, a little ball that I'll roll around in my hand. Sounds kind of lame, but hey, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> it's about health, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> 
Here's a YouTube comment for you, Nick. It's also about your health. This is from Tobias, who asks, Nick, as a father, how do you balance your life and find time for filmmaking with kids and full-time work? That's something that he's trying to do. Hmm. Good. Yeah, you don't. All right. There's no way to find the right balance. There's not enough time in the day. And I think Tobias knows this too. Um, when I was doing wedding videography, I had a full-time job. I had family and I was doing that. It was a lot. It, it was hard. You know, weddings are always on Saturday. So basically I would always try and limit myself to like one or two a month. I tried not to have every single weekend be uh, a wedding video weekend. Um, and then, like I said, I had this long commute every day to my full-time job, which was the perfect time to get editing done. So that kind of worked out. Um, you know, these days, I definitely have found I have to cut back on something, and filmmaking is definitely one of the things that I do less of. I don't do wedding videos anymore. I kind of focus on the family and the full-time job a little bit more. This is kind of my, my outlet now. How do I find time for this? Uh, I do it after the kids go to sleep. So kids are asleep yeah. right now. Um, as Griffin well knows that he has to stay up way late for me because <laughs> 8 o'clock on the West Coast is 11 o'clock in New York. Yeah. So sorry, Griffin. I make Griffin pay. You know, that's that's how I, I, I didn't it. think about it, but with, with, your, uh, with your move coming up, you're moving into a new house, mm -hmm. I should have lobbied for you to move to my time zone. Right. Right. Instead, we're just moving 10 minutes down the road, unfortunately. So I don't think there's a time zone change. I'll, I'll have to double check yeah. that. But right. um, since, since we're staying in the same town, I think this time zone is likely the same. I'm glad to hear that you are pri prioritizing your children and your family over yeah, you have shooting to sometimes. wedding videos. You have to sometimes. doesn't hurt that my you know the job I've moved into pays well enough where I don't feel like I need the income anymore either. Yeah. We got a YouTube comment question. from Mike Vrobel. Griffin, I'm reading this one, okay? They're just <laughs> going to have to settle down. Griffin and Nick, where do you store media assets you reuse in multiple videos? What's your workflow for these kind of things? He's saying he has logo images that he uses in almost every video. And he's thinking of your videos like Handy Filmmaker and Look What Griffin Did, your end credits. How do you store that so you can reuse it in every project? Well, luckily, those assets aren't very big. Like, little bitty. Yeah, that, that final little time lapse I use on my videos, I don't even know how big that is. It's probably, it's got to be under a gig. It's probably even smaller than it's that. Probably uh, like, yeah, it's only a few seconds long. or something. Yeah. I mean, it is like a ProRes 4K file, but it's only a few seconds long. Ah, okay. And a lot of those graphics are just PNG files. They might be kind of big for an image, but ultimately they don't take up that much disk space. But I do find that I need them on multiple machines and multiple hard drives because I find myself editing sometimes on my iMac at home, sometimes I'm editing the podcast on a laptop on the road, and so I I find myself copying them to different places. But I guess the Final Cut project files that I'm using or the libraries that I've set up know where to reference those things, so I'm not continually syncing them. But basically, you have them sitting on every hard drive you might possibly be using. Yeah. Actually, let me just pull up my Hey Film Podcast folder and see what's in here. Oh, yeah. I have a file called hifending.mov. Uh, this mm -hmm. was something. I don't even know if I told you about this. A few months ago, I realized it was kind of tedious that 
we have all these graphical elements that happen at the end of the podcast like there's a picture of us and there's text that says handy filmmakers and then some of the text disappears in time with the beat of the music and so there's always like it was it was like eight layers of things in my timeline and i'd have to adjust endpoints and outpoints every time i would do the edit and i just realized it was stupid to be adjusting the endpoints and outpoints of multiple things that all are going to have the same endpoints and outpoints every time so you but just rented them down individual or together and and save that as a file yeah i i, I exported the thing as a ProRes 4444 file because it includes transparency. Because mm-hmm. part of it was that I, I cut out a black rectangle to include that little bloopers thing that always happens at the end of the podcast. Yeah, usually me being stupid. Yep, I remember. <laughs> and then I also tied the music to it. So it's all just kind of now it's just one video file. And really all it takes now is like one cut in the middle of that video file that lets me kind of adjust the timing like depending on the length of the blooper i can just adjust those uh, those points but half the edits are already made for me you're so smart so that's a 1.33 gigabyte file that i use in every episode that n tag time lapse is only that's only 288 megabytes and then i have a folder called artwork which has some like various art that we use occasionally and i have a folder so do you have to music. bring those in like do you do a new library for every episode or do you have like a handy filmmakers library i have one handy filmmakers library actually i have multiple ones uh because they exist across machines so like oh, okay. i have one on my imac and one on my macbook pro and the one on my macbook pro maybe has like every other episode but in so theory, like this video file you've created is already in that library, so you're not having yeah. to re-import it every time. You're just dropping it exactly. Again. Yeah, and the way I the way I actually edit the podcast is I'll just go to the last episode that I edited on that machine, copy and, paste. and copy the the things out. Makes sense. Yeah. So every episode is kind of a template for the next episode. Well, that's our last question for the day. Thank you, Mike, for the question done and done we did good we did good so uh next week we've come to the end of our our eight episode run here this was episode 56 of the podcast which means next week we'll take a one week break before our next full episode but we do have a for our next season what season do we just finish and what season is starting I don't know. I've never called them seasons. You always do. But, I like uh, it. You know, if we're taking a, eight episodes in a season, and we take a break for seven. a week, and then we start. This just finished our seventh season? Yeah, but it's God, not a season. That's awesome. <laughs> it is a season. Why wouldn't it be a season? I don't know. I don't know why you gotta be like we, that. Maybe for the next episode, we need to figure out how many hours we've actually produced of this show. I have no sense of that. A lot many hours I mean, it's probably in the ballpark of 42 hours i was gonna yeah 40 something because you usually we're usually well under an hour right or maybe not yeah. well under but under <laughs> yeah good we'll keep it going yeah we have some math to do so we'll see you next time talk to you later bye-bye bye check check video is rolling i've only got five hours left on this sd card i only have 37 minutes so okay we'll speed it up